0: Our speaker this evening, uh, Douglas Brinkley, is the Catherine Sainoff Brown Chair in Humanities and Professor of History at Rice University. He is, and you probably recognize him from this, a CNN presidential historian, and he is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. In the world of public history, he serves on boards, at museums, at colleges, and for a few historical societies. Uh, The Chicago Tribune dubbed him, I quote, America's new past master. That's a pretty good title, I like that. The New York Historical Society has chosen Brinkley as its official U.S. presidential historian. His book, Cronkite, won the the Sparber Prize, and his book, The Great Deluge, Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans, and the Mississippi Gulf Coast, received the Robert Kennedy Book Award. He was awarded a Grammy for Presidential Suite and and was the recipient of seven honorary doctorates in American Studies. It's incredible. Uh, He is a member of the Century Association, the Council of Foreign Relations, and the James Madison Council of the Library of Congress. Uh, And in addition to the books I've already mentioned this evening, he's the author of The Wilderness Warrior, Theodore Roosevelt and the Crusades for America, Rightful Heritage, Franklin D. Roosevelt and the Land of America, and the just published and topic of tonight, American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy and the Great Space Race. Uh, we'll have copies available for sale. Uh, however, I will note that, that Doug, in his, his many obligations, will be taking off right away uh, to get back to, uh, to Texas, I believe. So he'll have a short window to sign afterwards, if you'd like them personalized. But in advance of that, we've had many copies signed already for you. So you can acquire a signed copy, even if you don't have an opportunity to meet him directly. Uh, but we're just thrilled to have you here, Doug. If you all would please join me. in a warm welcome for Douglas Brinkley.
1: Good evening. It's absolutely wonderful to be back here. Uh, Whenever I have a book coming out, I request that I get to come to Richmond. I've been eating my way through your city (laughs) today on Broad Street and last night when I got in. Um, This book, American Moonshot, was a real labor of love for me. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, But I grew up in Perrysburg, Ohio, near Toledo. And I was eight and a half years old when the Apollo 11 um, epic moment occurred. It was my first real moment I remember of history. It'll be 50 years ago this summer when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin um, set foot on the moon. The big date this summer will be July 20. You'll be hearing a lot about it, and it'll be covered widely Um, But the reason it made such a big impression on me is down the road from Perrysburg, Ohio, was Wapakoneta, Ohio. And Wapakoneta is the birthplace and boyhood home of Neil Armstrong. So in my early school years, the local boy is the Ohio guys, the first on the moon. It was a big deal in our house. And um, I was so much, I guess, boyhood heroes die slowly. I mean, I kept Armstrong as a hero for my whole life. But at one point, I had written a biography of Dean Acheson, Harry Truman, Secretary of State, and a book called Driven Patriot about James Forrestal, Secretary of the Navy and First Secretary of Defense. And I autographed both books with an inscription and mailed them to Neil Armstrong. I had acquired his P.O. box at a, in near Cincinnati on a farm where he lived. And I got a note back from his personal assistant that said, Mr. Armstrong will read one of the two books you sent him. (laughs) And and that he doesn't do interviews. He was, as you all know, famously media shy. Um, But he'll keep you in mind to talk with him down the line if something occurs. Um, Basically, a blow-off note. Um, but I didn't think about it much until I got a phone call about six, seven years later from NASA saying that Neil Armstrong's turning 70 years old and wanted you to be the one to do his oral history interview. And um, so I got very excited. Um, and I marked it on the calendar, it was for late September of 2001, and um, lo and behold, just it was gonna the the a few days before that big date you we had 9-11 and i was watching on television like all of you were that tragedy and i thought um certainly my neil armstrong interviews canceled because all of american airspace had been shut down and the airports closed and i was going to reschedule and i knew he didn't even really want to do this oral history but nasa had browbeaten him into it And I called George Abbey, the director, then, of the NASA Man Space, uh, who was going to be there for my interview, and he said, what are you talking about? Neil never cancels anything. (laughs) I said, really? He said, oh, I said, well, so he's going to fly. He goes, well, he's going to, I talked to him, and he's going to fly his own plane. (laughs) So he flew for an interview with me. I I stood there watching him pilot his landing on a runway and walk off into a little room to do a six-hour, we spent eight hours together. Um, interview about his whole career, and it was an incredible experience for me, and that was really the beginnings of his book, American Moonshot, so I've been thinking about it, working at it for quite a while. The other big confluence um, in my life was that I am now a professor, as mentioned in my nice introduction, uh, at Rice University, Houston. And it's at Rice where the original land for the Man Space Center used to be owned by Rice, and Houston became Space City. And I was able to tap a lot of the archives and NASA right in my own backyard. And more famously, really, on September 12, 1962, is when John F. Kennedy said, we're going to put a man on the moon, uh, you know, and and also said, we choose to put a man on a moon, not because it's um, easy, but because it's hard. And it's a famous speech at Rice. It's one of the best presidential speeches in my mind ever. It's certainly the best that deals with issues like public discovery, scientific inquiry, American can-doism. He, Kennedy was able to connect going to the moon with Lewis and Clark and Columbus and Magellan and ages of exploration and the like. So it was quite um, quite a speech. and. Um, and I decided after I started getting at it that I was going to make Kennedy the focus of it. Because I asked myself, why did John F. Kennedy put so much of his capital, political capital, on going on the moon? It cost you guys, Americans, $25 billion. It's $185 billion in today's terms for Apollo. And um, that was my first question I started asking. Now, Kennedy was born in 1917 in Brookline, Massachusetts. And you all know the story about it, Rose Kennedy and, and um, his patriarchal father, um, you know, Joe Kennedy, and their wealth and aristocratic background. Um, but the thing that was interesting is the big hero of John F. Kennedy's life, if you're born in 1917, when he was my age, for Neil Armstrong, the big person was Charles Lindbergh, who in 1927 had flown the Atlantic, and it created this wild aviation boom for young people. Also, CBS Radio started by 27 doing radio broadcasts about going to the moon and Mars someday. You had in children's toys and comic books of Flash Gordon and and, uh, Buck Rogers and the like. In fact, during the NASA heydays of the 1960s, when they were looking for money on Capitol Hill uh, at NASA, people would always say, "No bucks, no Buck Rogers." You know, it costs money, and we got if we're going to go to the moon. Um, so Kennedy grew up in that milieu, and not just that, the for only American rocketeer uh, of any note was Robert Goddard, and Goddard hailed from. Um, Massachusetts, was a professor at Clark University and at a cabbage field in Auburn, Massachusetts, not all that far from Brookline, really. Um, he was putting up projectiles, liquid fuel rockets, into the sky. He got written up for noise making and the like. Uh, in fact, they gave him a bit of a hard time in Massachusetts, so he moved to Roswell, New Mexico. Uh, so if you're wondering why you hear about all these aliens out there, it's... Uh, <laughs> cowhands and ranchers were not lying. They were seeing strange things in the sky out in the middle of the desert. Um, But Goddard was like the only real rocketeer of major note we had. Here in Langley Research um, Center in Hampton, Virginia, we were doing amazing aviation testing and government funding of um, of, uh, what will eventually become part of NASA, of, of, of space exploration But it was really about aviation in the 20s and 30s. The place that rockets were a big deal, if not in America, was Germany. Weimar Republic, there were German rocket clubs. Rocketry was a huge thing. And I write in my book about Werner von Braun, the great German rocketeer who uh, was considered a genius um, engineer as a child, Um, He came from also, like Kennedy, an aristocratic family. His father was a baron. They had money. He went to Berlin Technical. All of this. Um, But in the 1930s, von Braun did not leave um, um, Hitler's Germany. Some of the best scientists started leaving the country where von Braun stayed because he wanted government contracts for his rocket and missile experiments. Hence, he became Adolf Hitler's chief rocketeer. During the 19, uh, World War II, von Braun um, w- built our, what they called Hitler's vengeance weapons, the V1, the V2, and V3. Um, I don't have time to, it's in my book, to delineate on all of them except to tell you that von Braun was a member of the SS, that he became an ardent Nazi, that to build his missiles, they used Jewish labor from the Dora camp, which is a subcamp of Buchenwald. And von Braun is the first person in y- human history to ever put any projectile uh, um, at breaking Earth's gravity into outer space. He was able to fire a rocket out- off the Baltic Sea at his secret base that exceeded the 62-mile straight-up limit of the Kármán line, and he ended up um, building these V-2 bombs missiles that are the beginning of space rockets, and today's ICBMs, Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles. Uh, The V-2 got moved right over to Holland, they could fire as far an arc 210 miles. So suddenly, like in The Hague, in the Netherlands, the German army would come in late '44, and they'd fire these V2s onto London. There was a, the attempt was to flatten and destroy the entire city of London. The V2s did great damage, killed civilians. If they had time to perfect the V2, uh, Hitler may have survived. But alas, Hitler was racing these l- desperate rockets, so some misfired. They weren't perfected on precision bombing, if you'd like, that we have today. So some of them went, went you know, blew up in fields and, and uh, little suburban London towns and the like. You never hit key, uh, key um, military parts or key parts of downtown London, although London now, if you go to London today, there's the whole history. The V2's a big part of London history. Um, So Von Braun now is this, uh, if you just pause for a minute there, 44 and 45, let me tell you, Jack Kennedy, both of the Kennedy boys served, you know, with the the older ones, uh, Joe Kennedy Jr. and John F. Kennedy joined the Navy. You probably all remember Jack Kennedy served on the PT-109 boat that broke up in the Pacific, Solomon Islands campaign. He had to save some of crewmates, and they were marooned on an island. And John Hershey wrote a heroic story about these PT-109 Mosquito boats, they were called. And young Jack Kennedy became a bit of a hero in America, war hero. He had also written a book called Why England Slept. While his brother, Joe Jr., was an ace pilot out of Europe. He was a Navy aviator, flew just dozens of successful combat missions, so many that they were going to let him go home because he had survived so many daring missions. So he was also a great war hero, Joe Kennedy Jr. But they then asked him, Before you go home, do you want to be part of Operation Aphrodite? And he said, Yes. This was really risky. What the U.S. did was take just uh, uh, military planes, but like B 24 and you'd pack it from, you clean out the whole plane, and you pack it with Torpex, which is like dynamite, TNT, from cockpit all the way to the back, so filled with explosives. And his job was to fly the plane and then go down like a drone and hit into where we thought V1s, V2s, and V3 parts were being assembled along the French coast in these underground tunnels. That's what his mission was. He, he blew up. All of that dynamite blew him up in the sky. And he, uh, and he perishes. Um, and that was obviously for John F. Kennedy, losing that big brother who was, um, was, uh, stayed with him all of his life. I'm going to tell you in a minute why that's important. But um, back to von Braun in Europe. He now suddenly uh, is recognizing the Third Reich's crumbling. After D-Day, after the Bulge were marching to Berlin, the U.S. Army, the Red Army of, of Stalin is coming and closing in on Berlin, also, and von Braun does the smartest move of his life: is he he forges documents from his missile camp, puts all the missile parts and blueprints onto a train, grabs the what it turned out to be 137. Of the best German rocket experts that he had trained, the 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 leaders, and they escaped in and hid in the Bavar- Bavarian Alps, and he then they took all of those blueprints, the technology, and they put it into an opening and dynamited the front of it to close the cave so nobody would find it, and Werner von Braun and his younger brother Magnus, miles down country roads on a bicycle looking to surrender to the U.S. Army. A guy from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, you know, pulled a gun on him, and he said, no, my brother's Werner von Braun, and nobody believed him. Uh, Eventually, uh, Army Intelligence interrogated Magnus von Braun. They found out that that really was his brother. He said, I'll lead you to him and all of the tech of missiles if you don't try us for war crimes. If we can move to the United States and work for the U.S. government. and the U.S. Army makes a deal, and they we end up. It's called Operation Paperclip. Um, we bring Werner von Braun and all of these German Nazi rocket scientists to America to live at Fort Bliss and El Paso, Texas, and to test their new rock, fangled rocketry out in New Mexico, the the White Grounds, the White Sands Proving Grounds. Um, von Braun was considered a prisoner of peace, a P.O.P. He always had an, an army escort following him, so they really weren't free to move, but they were able to avoid a Nuremberg-like trial. He desperately didn't want to go to Russia, Von Braun, and in London they probably would would have tried him for war crimes because of the V-2. Um, but Eisenhower, and that Truman didn't really greenlight the missiles to the degree he should have, and Eisenhower never forgave von Braun for the Holocaust involvement. Um, and so he was in the Army as an asset, but we weren't activating him a whole lot out there in, in Fort Bliss. He And he started then recognizing his first talk was to the El Paso Rotary Club, all about going to the moon someday. And remember, he was trying to present himself as a good German. There were good Germans and bad Germans. Um, and the Korean War, we didn't have missiles in the Korean War. We had the best. Neil Armstrong was one of we, you know, threw like, flew like, you know, 40 combat missions in Korea. He was a great aviator. And Wally Schirra and John Glenn, we were premiering in military aviation, largely from some research done on wind tunnels and the like here in Langley uh, Research Center in Virginia. But the, um, pr- we noticed that it was a deficit. And by 1950, we moved von Braun and his team of Germans to Huntsville, Alabama to, to take over the Redstone arsenal and to start developing modern interna- intercontinental ballistic missiles. Um, and we start funding it, but Ike wouldn't overfund it. But some problems happen. So by, first off, I want to tell you, in 1953, John F. Kennedy meets Werner von Braun. Von Braun became famous and liked in America because Walt Disney globbed onto him, and he started becoming on Walt Disney's television shows and movies about futuristic space and Tomorrowland and going to the moon, and Von Braun was handsome, debonair, a lot like Kennedy in many ways, was always called a ladies' man. and had these intense eyes and made good, he was a great media manipulator, which is rare for a scientist engineer type. He was really good at public relations, von Braun. So John F. Kennedy's father arranged for young Jack Kennedy, just elected from the Senate in 1952, to be a judge for Time's Man of the Year in 1953. And the other judge was Warner von Braun. And Kennedy and von Braun meet in 1953 at a TV studio in New York and go out for dinner and talk, and von Braun would later say all Jack Kennedy talked about was how his brother died trying to take out my ballistic missiles. Uh, And Kennedy held zero grudge against von Braun. Zero. Why? Eisenhower has a grudge, Kennedy doesn't. Eisenhower, Von Braun and Kennedy thought of Eisenhower as a 19th century man. He was born in the 19th century. S- Churchill was born in the 19th century. Khrushchev, 19th century. De Gaulle, 19th century. They were the young guys caught up in fighting World War II. Kennedy's view was he was a German, he fought for his country. I was an American, I fought for my country. And in 1953, Times Man of the Year was Konrad Adenauer of West Germany. And but getting Germany into NATO was a big deal, and having Germany as our great European ally, and we were building bases in Germany, so it wasn't he wasn't stigmatized von Braun for his Nazi past to the degree um, you might think. Um, there were letters, people complaining here and there that I've read, but. Um, Ike in, the, the, so then remember, guys, the Soviet Union, we had, the only time in world history the United States has a monopoly on atomic weapons, and that's from 1945 to 49. We're the only country. We're the nuclear power, and then the Soviets get the bomb in 49, then they develop hydrogen weapons, and in 1957, they put Sputnik up, the first satellite ever. And, um, and it shocks us as a society. The truth is, the CIA expected it to happen um, pretty soon. They had enough intelligence about their rocket program. But when satellite went beep, 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 and you know, it became like, you should see the front page of the New York Times, I write about in the book, just how harrowing this was for many people that we were losing the space race, we were losing missiles. That we were vulnerable. It fed into the Red Scare. It fed into anti-communism, McCarthyism. Eisenhower's didn't wasn't that concerned. He believed our satellite technology was as good. So what if they were first? We might come a, a year later, which we did with the Explorer. Who cares who's first? He wasn't into this race thing with Russia. But Jack Kennedy saw it as a political opening. And so did Lyndon Johnson, and so did Henry Scoop Jackson, the senator of Washington State, and so did Stuart Symington, senator from Missouri. And they started hammering on President Eisenhower as being a uh, losing the space race, there's a missile gap, the term missile gap's created by Kennedy, um, that we are losing to Russia due to Eisenhower's golfing and not caring. (laughs) And um, they're out hawking Ike, You know, Ike was a fiscal conservative doing balanced defense budgets with the new look, and Kennedy's finding his opening in his feet and giving speeches, and also about STEM. Uh, John F. Kennedy was about STEM uh, and education, that we're falling behind uh, Russia and math and science and physics, and it became part of the late 50s. Eisenhower did one response that worked to Sputnik and one didn't. The one that worked is in 1958, he created NASA. The leading engine for NASA was the, the power broker, Senator Lyndon B. Johnson. But, uh, and Johnson works with Eisenhower to create NASA as civilians in space. We're not gonna militarize space civilian exploration. Um, the downside of what Eisenhower did is they greenlit the rockets to compete with, in space. With, they gave the contract to the US Navy. And the Navy built Vanguard rockets. And if you've seen those photos in Cape Canaveral, the vanguards would come up and collapse. Um, von Braun was livid at Eisenhower. I've got the rocketry. And you're not green lighting my Huntsville guys. You know We've got it. We know how to do it. Ike goes to the Navy. They don't know what they're doing. You know It was this ego clash between Army, Navy and Air Force. Um, over who's going to be controlling the skies with their rockets. So Kennedy runs, gets the Democrat, c- procures the Democratic nomination in 1960. He calls his overall program the New Frontier, the term New Frontier came out of NASA culture. NASA also, in response to Sputnik, created the Mercury 7 astronauts, which Life magazine bought their life rights, and they became big celebrities. I'll talk about the Mer- Mercury 7 astronauts in a moment. But we still had no man in space. The Soviets put Laika, a dog, up into space, and the dog died in space from heat and stress and dehydrated. And America felt if you're going to put in a creature up, you've got to bring the creature down. And the Soviets, there's no PETA in Russia. <laughs> uh, but, um, and uh, so, you know, we're kind of looking, trying to see where we're at with Russia, and lo and behold, uh, Kennedy calls it the new frontier, and then in the debates with Nixon that you all certainly are, know about, um, Kennedy scores points on Nixon, Vice President Nixon, at one point he says to Nixon, it gives him a good punch, he says, "Oh, you, um, you told Mr. Khrushchev last year that America's number one in kitchen appliances. I don't care about kitchen appliances. I want to be number one in rocket thrust. And another mo- uh, moment in that debate with Nixon, Kennedy says, if, I think if you're elected, I see a Soviet flag planted on the moon. I want an American flag planted on the moon. Um, and it helped. It gave him a, a, one of the reasons Kennedy wins is this sort of aggressive um, stance he took. And he becomes president. You know about his famous inaugural speech, the Ask Not, in uh, January of 61, but shortly thereafter, the Soviets put up Yuri Gagarin, the first human in space. They beat us, cosmonaut. And Gagarin is, is, happens on Kennedy's watch, not Eisenhower's. And Kennedy hated it. You should read the White House, you sighty, an old journalist got to sit in on one of the meetings and Kennedy starts screaming, I wanna know how to beat the Russians. I don't, who, uh, anybody, the janitor, tell me. I wanna beat them. He, he really was ye- yelling at his team um, because of Gagarin happening. And out of that comes Kennedy green lighting the first Mercury mission, Alan Shepard. And on May 5th, 1961, we put, as a response to Gagarin, we put Alan Shepard into space. Now, we didn't know Shepard would live. We know he did now. But <laughs> at the time, at the time, he easily could have died. We were not doing that well. There are more disasters going out of Cape Canaveral than winds. And, um, but, so Kennedy didn't have his fingerprints on that. He was letting Lyndon Johnson be the space guy. So if, if Shepard would have b- b- died, Johnson would have been scapegoated. Um, and lo and behold, Alan Shepard, who's from New Hampshire, his family were just direct lineage to the Mayflower Shepard. He went up and became a giant hero. And Kennedy could not believe the television ratings that, that he saw with Shepard. Everybody watched. And at that point, Kennedy says, Wow. How, how he started regularly talking to James Webb as NASA director. Who, who next? How many of these can we do? If each one is a bonanza, these Mercury 7 will be Kennedy's Space Cadets. The New Frontier. These virile, handsome men are conquering the new ocean of space. And, and it was perfect for a president. Um, his polls ticked up after Alan Shepard, and he had had a, a rough spring due to the Bay of Pigs. Um, and so the um, there's a direct link. May 5th, 61, Alan Shepard. May 25th, 61, Kennedy shocks everybody by going to Congress, calling a joint session, and in an afternoon speech says, we're gonna put a man on the moon by the end of the decade and bring him back alive, and greenlit this Apollo moonshot project. Um, now, the term moonshot, I had to investigate its beginnings. Actually, the term moonshot uh, was first developed by um, a baseball hitter named Wally Moon for the Los Angeles Dodgers, who in 1959 would hit towering home runs in the Los Angeles Coliseum as the Dodgers were headed for the World Series. He would be saying, there's uh, Vince Scully, the radio announcer, is the one who coined it. He kept saying, it's a moonshot, you know, over the right field fence. And it fell into kind of sports parlance for when Wally Moon hit a home run. And by 62, it's all over the place. NASA's using moonshot. And they even officially, before it was called Man Space Flight Center, they called it the Moonshot Command Center in Houston. Um, now the word moonshot means American can-doism and going uh, defeating impossible odds. People are looking today. What's the new moonshot? Buzz Aldrin thinks the new moonshot should be a Mars shot. Um, you know, there, uh, Joe Biden is saying it's a war on cancer that he calls it. MD Anderson and Biden are calling it the cancer moonshot. Um, There's people that are interested in in combating climate change immediately in a real way and calling it an earth shot instead of a moon shot. But at any rate, it it means this kind of endeavor where the U.S. federal government, the great universities, research and development centers, laboratories, um, private sector, all work together to accomplish something that seems difficult and almost impossible. Um, so after Shepard, the big thing I was stunned at is how, um, how, how they raised the money. It became bipartisan. They were getting the budgets for it all. Kennedy kept sending up Gus Grissom this time and you know Scott Carpenter. The big one was John Glenn in 1962 when Glenn orbited the Earth five times and it was a huge deal. Glenn became bigger than Alan Shepard. Uh, Glenn be, most of the astronauts, I found out, were Republican, kind of nominal Republicans. The, um, um, John Glenn became a Democrat, and he got recruited to the Democratic Party by the Kennedy family. Uh, he became almost an adjunct member of the Kennedy family, John Glenn. Uh, I interviewed Ethel Kennedy, the widow of Robert Kennedy, and she told me, which she never it's kind of knew in my book, when her husband was killed in Los Angeles, she went looking for a phone and called John Glenn to tell her to go to Hickory Hill in Virginia to look after her children. Uh, Because he had become like, he was such a calm presence, and the children had learned to love him, and he could be there to look after them while she was there. Um, And Glenn, after he came back, his uh, friendship seven capsule traveled all the world, Glenn became a, a Goodwill ambassador was a hero of Charles Lindbergh proportions and Kennedy's masking and all of this. Now, also, you and Virginia are beneficiaries of the Kennedy tech push, because what Webb and Kennedy wanted for the new frontier, and we gotta remember, 1960 is only 15 years after World War II. Because in one way, the big thing, the way to look at what happened was they were, Kennedy's saying, what's my big special project? You know, FDR had Grand Coulee Dam or Tennessee Valley Authority and the CCC and WPA bridges and for infrastructure. Eisenhower did the interstate highway system, St. Lawrence Seaway. Kennedy decided the big one was going to be technology corridors, and space exploration dollars put into and flood the southern zone, what they called the the Gulf South, um, Southwest, and uh, Middle South. And lo and behold, money started coming in. These billions of dollars went into places like Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi, Virginia, Florida, because Kennedy had barely won the South in 1960. I mean, Texas, he just went by a hair with Lyndon Johnson on, on the ticket with him. In 64, Kennedy was fearful he'd lose the entire South because of his civil rights programs. His brother, Robert F. Kennedy, was being running the Justice Department, and they were going after segregation. They were going after Jim Crow. You know about James Meredith integrating Old Miss and Wallace and Alabama and all of that in the 60s Freedom Rides and 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 this is going on when Kennedy's space program is going on, so Kennedy said let's, what they did was tell a, a old segregationist Southern senator, Democrat back then, uh, how about $150 million this year into Biloxi for the space, the Saturn, you know, uh, building assembly? How about we put in, you know, a billion dollars here in Florida, they told Smathers, George Smathers, a Democratic um, Senator who was really an arch segregationist, uh, and uh, we'll put some money into Florida here. Cape, how you know you just stay quiet on civil rights, leave us, let us do what we got to do, and we'll, we'll, we'll pork, useful pork. Um, and it was probably the right thing to do. But Kennedy is always politician. He was looking for re-election in '64, and, and this space was part of his strategy. K- keep in mind, Kennedy hated losing. So did Warner von Braun. Uh, they both could not take loss. All, if you want to understand Jack Kennedy, forget the debonair photos, forget the smile, forget the Irish wit, the charm. That's all real. That's there. The big thing was his father instilled in him: "We don't lose. Win, win, win." Jack Kennedy never lost a political race in his life. He won for Congress in 1946 he won Congress in 48, he won Congress in 50, he won the Senate in 52, he won the Senate in 58, and he beats Nixon in 60 to be president. Never lost. And uh, there's one, many, many stories I have of this ilk, but one will suffice. He, he was playing chess with um, one of his White House aides, O'Donnell, and they were doing, playing a chess game, and he, Kennedy suddenly got trapped, he was about to be checkmated, and he bumped accidentally and docked the entire chess set over, <laughs> and, and said, I guess we'll never know who won. <laughs> um, so I'm not saying this lightly about him winning, and he truly wanted to beat the Soviet Union in space. He also didn't like war, He was not a war hawk. He worked constantly for peace. He did the nuclear test ban treaty, famous peace speech at American University of doing away with testing of atomic and nuclear weapons um, in in the atmosphere and underwater. He created the Peace Corps. This was a very progressive, spirited, anti-war guy, but the competition with the Soviets was for civilian, peaceful going to the moon. Um, the moon race, would be a good way for these two giants to go at it short of war. and they, Better than a Korea, right? Or I go to another Korea war, what will we'll become Vietnam, let's compete in this science arena, uh, engineering arena. And of course, Kennedy constantly visits von Braun and Huntsville. They became deeply close. He visits Cape Canaveral all the time. Um, and so much so, guys, that by the time Of his death, and he, the day before he died, he was in San Antonio, Texas, speaking, giving an entire presidential speech on space medicine. Meaning, the spin off technology of going to the moon was reaping all of these healthcare benefits CAT scan, MRI, new kind of x rays, heart defibrillators, foldable walkers, um, you know, uh, all of these new medical technologies were coming from these extraordinary tests that, of endurance and the like that they were doing um, you know, in NASA. And then, that's, after that speech, he goes to Houston, Texas, uh, and gives a speech, a gala dinner, uh, to honor Congressman Albert Thomas of Houston. Thomas happened to have been the head of the Congre- Congressional Space Appropriations. So if you're wondering why Houston got all this money, Kennedy wanted to win Texas in 64, and Albert Thomas held the purse strings for space. And all they did, like um, Jeff Bezos just did, one of those lotteries of who's going to get the Amazon facility, that's what NASA did for all of the dollars, and every state put in bids, cities wanted it, all the jobs. I mean, going to the moon took, was 400,000 people Work for Apollo to go on to the moon, and um, all these contractors, subcontractors. It was an economic engine. So much so that Houston, by 1962, right after Kennedy's gets gives them the golden ticket for the all the space there. They their baseball team that year becomes the Astros, and then NBA team, the Rockets. And it becomes from Bayou City, it becomes Space City USA, and Boeing, and McDonald, and all these companies are putting on satellite campuses in Houston. Uh, so Kennedy, right the day before his death, on uh, the evening before he was killed, is there with Albert Thomas, and he made a, a slip up in a speech, he said, um, and here in Houston, you, have, you, are, you are responsible for the biggest payroll. And he said, I, I meant payload. And then then he said, well, well, I gave you the biggest payroll in Houston, too. And he had. Uh, In fact, George Herbert Walker Bush was the head of the Republican Party in Harris County, where Houston is. And on Kennedy's arrival, Bush put out a note, so all Republicans should honor John F. Kennedy's visit for Houston for what he's done for our city. That's the head of the Republican Party. I mean, that's how big Kennedy was in Houston for doing all this. But after that, they goes Jackie's with him, and they go to Fort Worth and then to Dallas. He was supposed to have Gordon Cooper, a Mercury astronaut, with him, Uh, but Gordon Cooper got called away last minute um, to do a training exercise, and uh, Kennedy was planning in Dallas to have Gordon Cooper waving with him as a space hero. Um, On his way, when he was murdered in Dallas, he was about to deliver a space speech at the Trademark, talking about how many satellites we've put into space, how it's the age of telecommunications, reconnaissance planes, weather satellites, how global positioning, GPS is being created out of NASA, all in Kennedy's speech that he never delivers. Now, with the death of John F. Kennedy, you can imagine the heart sinking in NASA, and I talk about how all the astronauts of that era took in the death of Kennedy, quote them, but um, Jackie Kennedy, first meeting with Lyndon Johnson and Lady Bird, right after her husband's death, she goes to the White House and says to Lyndon, I have a, one request, I want Jack's dream to stay alive of going to the moon. And Johnson says, yes, we're going to, I'm going to back it. And they name Cape Canaveral the Kennedy Space Center as the first honor to John F. Kennedy. And throughout the '60s, when NASA's effort Apollo starts talking about being defunded, um, you started having a uh, Kennedy effect. Oh no! Well, you know you're you're going to abandon Kennedy's you know hope and dream and all of this. Um, people that were opposed to going to the moon, um, there were uh, Barry Goldwater from conservative Arizona, right, thought that all that money should go to the U.S. Air Force for militarization in space. Air Force control, not going into NASA, civilian going to the moon, what do we get out of it, a bunch of moon rocks kind of thing. Um, on the liberal side, Walter Mondale, senator of Minnesota, was opposed to it. William Fulbright, senator of Arkansas, was opposed to funding Apollo. They thought the money should be spent on education here at home or urban, uh, urban um, issues, poverty issues. Uh, NAACP, many African-American leaders, um, were um, like Ralph Abernathy probably was the biggest critic from civil rights community against going to the moon as, a, as always careful to honor the astronauts and say nothing, nothing negative about them, um, but couldn't this money be better spent here at home? But it had enough zip to keep going. Remember Mercury program is one astronaut, Gemini are two astronauts, and then Apollo is three, and each one's an incremental step to eventually have that moon landing. The big almost derailment moment comes when Apollo 1 blows up in 1967 at Cape Canaveral, and we lose three astronauts, Ed White, Gus Grissom, and um, Adam, oh, and, and, uh, and uh, Roger Chafee. And they all perish, incinerate on a test. There wasn't even a launch. And you know, people then said, well, w- w- suddenly in 67, there was a lot of noise. Like, why are we trying to do this by the end of the decade? Wasn't that pretty random of Jack Kennedy? Why is this a mission that must be fulfilled? Are we, w- you know, are we really ready for this? But it still had enough gas in its tank to go through. And by 1969, of course, Richard Nixon is president, and in the summer of 69, we put the Apollo mission on. It had about a 50-50 chance of success, Apollo. Better chance that the astronauts come home alive, um, but the idea that it would all work was, who knew? So much so that Nixon had William Sapphire write an, a letter about the disaster of Apollo 11, ready to give it to the country uh, if something bad happened. Uh, but you, over 550 million people watched Going to the Moon all over the world. It was a giant, giant, epic moment. Um, leading up to it, Bill Moyers, LBJ speechwriter, of course you all know him from PBS over the decades, but Moyers and Daniel Patrick Moynihan launched a campaign with to Nixon to name the rocket the John F. Kennedy and I got to find these documents in the Nixon Library in your Belinda, where H.R. Haldeman, some of you might remember him, <laughs> uh, White House Chief of Staff for Nixon, Haldeman wrote in one, it was actually kind of funny, but of, of this, it started tracking some, to name it, and Haldeman writes in this, absolutely not, this is an NBC News um, plot to Kennedy eyes, uh, our accomplishment under Nixon, and that this cannot be, um, and, and um, that we, we want And then a, another memo said no to Nixon not to do it. He said, "This is a, what liberals do. If you name the rocket the John F. Kennedy, they're going to say you didn't you didn't name the moon Kennedy, and it should be named the moon. They keep moving the marker. <laughs> Don't do it." And um, Nixon did not. Nixon assiduously avoided mentioning John F. Kennedy over the summer of 69. And incidentally, um, it's sad and uh, whatever. It's just but that uh, right when Neil Armstrong went on the moon, Joe Kennedy and Rose Kennedy, the parents of JFK, were alive and watched the moon launch at Cape Canaveral at their house. And uh, what a moment their son's dream fulfilled exact same day Ted Kennedy at Chappaquiddick. Exactly. This summer will be 50 years at Chappaquiddick. Exact time. Great success, horrible family tragedy, both like that married together. Um, But you know who really praised John F. Kennedy was NASA and all the astronauts. Uh, When they were retrieved in the South Pacific by the Hornet, the USS Hornet, and they rescued the astronauts, Armstrong, Aldrin, and Michael Collins, who didn't go on the moon, but, but uh, you know, uh, was on the mission, um, immediately upon their retrieval, on the big screen board, bigger than this behind me, flashed John F. Kennedy's pledge of May 25th, 1961, or put a man to the moon by the end of the decade, and underneath it, it said, task accomplished, July 1969. Um, this was the greatest honor of Kennedy's presidency that there, that uh, and through all of these trials and tribulations of the 1960s, Vietnam, great society, unrest, you know all of it um, the Apollo program kept getting grandfathered in and uh, we we did it. We went to the moon um, at that time. It was I should mention and then I'll take it open for questions all. Um, There were, um, I'm being very positive about NASA, because I believe they did an extraordinary job for a government agency in the 60s of um, advertising, accountability, inflaming public imagination, excellence. But you know, I don't know if we wanna take, there were a lot of risk they took. We're a very risk-averse society today when we talk about space people. NASA kept taking a lot of risk. Also, NASA had a problem, I think they made a mistake of not having a woman astronaut. I'm not saying that to pander to women in the audience, but um, there was a group of 13 women called the Mercury 13, and they all the women had trained and passed all the endurance tests. They were flight pilots, test pilots, they were remarkable. From a physiological point of view, they were perfect, because every astronaut had to be 5'10" or less, and size mattered. You didn't want to have even a half a pound extra weight when you went into space. These women were all ready to go, and um, that plug got pulled on them that there wasn't time to do a gender move like that. Um, and the reason not only from a women's history point of view isn't unfortunate for those women, but the Soviets put the first woman in the moon, why, why we didn't. But the good news is Sally Ride went up in 1983, and um, since then, there are many women astronauts and space stations and space exploration, and it's a very fertile, fine field for young women to go into. And they are space sciences; it's it's really popular. Many, many women astronauts. I just was with Kathy Sullivan, who was the first woman spacewalker, and um, so it may be the new moon shot will be a, a woman shot. You know, we're putting the first woman on the moon. Um, uh, Vice President Mike Pence suggested in Huntsville a few weeks ago, in four or five years, we might go back to the moon, and certainly it needs to be a woman being an astronaut to land there. And then there's the problem of it all being white men. Um, Edward R. Murrow of CBS News fame lobbied hard Kennedy and the administration officials um, that it should be a person of color in the Mercury program. And he said, most of the world is not white. And if the United States wants to, would send an African-American or Native American or you know, uh, Latino, whatever, um, it would make a huge impact in South Africa and India and Egypt and, uh, and, and all around the world. But we didn't do that either. Um, and, but, you know, it was still a world of white male patriarchy and, um, and I'm sure you all know that, but I thought it's, I I shouldn't mention it. Um, and finally, we're asked where next on the 50th anniversary, what are we going to do? Well, one thing we did, there was no going to the moon without Russia. We were tied to the hip because we were competing. In fact, in Kennedy's Rice speech, he wrote in the margins, on his own handwriting, you see the original speech. He's saying, you know, why do we go to the moon? Why climb Mount Everest? And then he put, why does Rice play University of Texas in football? <laughs> you know, because it's a challenge. You know, and you know, uh, you know. But the um, uh, one of the touching things NASA did was when, uh, you if you really micro-watch it, right before the might this summer, they'll be playing a lot. Right before there, they, time is of essence on the moon. They're getting back up, Armstrong and Aldrin ready. They've got to get right on board. And Armstrong uh, says, did you leave the packet? And Armstrong had not. And he stops, and you see a bulky spacesuit, drops drop something on the moon, and they get up. In that packet were medals honoring the Soviet cosmonauts who had died in their space program. Um, Meaning, on the moon right now are Soviet medals for Gagarin and others. Gagarin died in 1967 um, to show that a respect to our competition that we couldn't have gone there without these with the Soviets. Developing their tech corridors in Kazakhstan, developing their Star City, developing their—we couldn't have done it. So, uh, and then by 1975, that race is over. We do joint docking in space with Russia in 1975, and uh, now the question will be: Do is our society geared that you have to have a competition to get back in new ways to get the public excitement going? China is going to the moon a lot right now. They're exploring the dark side of it. It might be the spur that moves us on there. Um, there are also privatization of space. NASA has competition with Jeff Bezos and Musk and Br- um, um, Branson and many others, a Russian, all our, you know, privatization efforts. The good news for privatization, it's a lot of jobs for people that want to be astronauts or uh, go into space, because they're hiring and paying more than the federal government does um, for young people. So we'll see, I'm careful not to pick a winner in that sweepstakes uh, of, those, of those upstart companies, but they're out there and they're doing things, uh, and uh, I hope this summer people of a certain age will reflect on where they were when Neil Armstrong went to the moon, and for young people, um, they're thinking about it as a high-water mark of the technological revolution that hit America. There's NASA in the 60s, and by the 70s, it turns to Silicon Valley and and then into Seattle and the rest. And today, you are all carrying on your phone more technology than they could imagine back when Alan Shepard was shot up in that kind of tin can into space. Thank you all. Thank you very much. I'd love to take any questions, and I think somebody's coming around, or can I there you go with the microphone, sir, he'll give it to you.
0: To what,
1: to what degree was Werner von Braun involved in Apollo? He built the rocket that went to the moon. I guess I buried my lead. Uh, <laughs> he's the Saturn V rocket, the moon ship was Werner von Braun. He built all the Saturn rockets. His engineering feats never failed. He built the Jupiter missiles in the 50s that were famous, but the Saturn is the greatest engineering achievement of all, of all time. And uh, the Saturn V um, went to it. His rockets were were flawless uh, in conception, and the Saturn V it was, was the one that took it. Nixon canceled. After Paul 11, we, had, we have had 12 moonwalkers. The Apollo ratings would go down after we did it. And Nixon after 19... 19- at Apollo 13 was almost a disaster, and Nixon got very worried about dead astronauts on his watch, you know, floating around in space, unretrievable, a black eye to America in the Cold War. And he started losing all interest in NASA, and the last of the rockets that Von Braun had built for Saturn um, were grounded, and now they're museum pieces. If you go to Huntsville, Alabama, you could see one in their rocket field over there. They're still more imposing than you think when you go near one. You think you realize how large they are, but when you go by it, you really, it takes your breath away.
0: Yes. Um, Thank you very much. Wonderful book. Um, Thank you. I have a question. Maybe if you could just tell us what happened to the Russians on the way to the moon, um, 1968,
1: 1969. Wonderful question. Uh, Russia has their own problems. (laughs) Their uh, first one is their um, Korolev, their great, um, Sergei Korolev was their great um, rocket scientist. He died of a botched surgery in the mid 60s. He was their version of Werner von Braun, so they lost him. Then they had their own Apollo 1 like disaster, even worse, meaning more deaths of uh, cosmonauts, but it, it turned into such an inferno ball at their Star City compound, that um, top engineer, rocket engineers died in Russia also. Um, The best thing to understand is what Khrushchev's son said, Um, Nikita Khrushchev's son, Sergei, um, said that he asked his father, because Kennedy toyed with the idea, of maybe we'll jointly go to the moon with Russia. And he said this in front of the UN at one point. What about joint? Well, you don't like us, what if we go together? And and his son asked his father, asked the leader, the Soviet premier, Dad, could we ever go with America to the moon? And he said, never. He said, because if we cooperate in that kind of program, they'll know what we don't have, and we don't have much. It was a deflection. Khrushchev knew if we did join, because we were more transparent. We were filming our things, and the world could... Where Russia was doing everything secret, 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 and we kind of overestimated what they had, and if and so he it wouldn't have happened. Now, right at the time of going to the moon, they were a, an inch away, really, from uh, putting tortoises on the moon. Um, that they did not hadn't figured out this rendezvous process that we did with the Eagle landing and you know, it very complicated the rendezvous as we and John Hubbold from Virginia, working Langley was a big leader in getting the, um, the, this figured out how to do it. Uh, but they did feel they knew how to land live creatures on the moon and were going to do that, but alas, they, they, they failed at that too. And um, their moon dream, they've never been able to figure out the technology. Uh, that's why the moonshot kind of gives America the edge because we figured out how to do it. It is thought that China knows how to do it today. I've heard, it. can you confirm that we, in terms of getting the first person in space, that we had the Redstone rocket, and we could have done that before this Russia, because uh, being Jack Kennedy, being Navy, he kept wanting to see the Navy get the uh, first shot going up, and because of that, uh, he didn't use the Redstone rocket. We could have done that, and had the first person in space. Definitely true. We easily could have had the first in space. Uh, Alan, and we could have the first satellite. Our technology for both was there. Kennedy's dilemma—you know—he didn't buy; any, he was cautious for all of this recklessness. And we're going to the moon by the end of the decade. It took Gagarin to make him move um, that firmly uh, and resolutely. What's really interesting um, was that you know, yes, Shepard could have gone. Was angry at Kennedy because he wanted to. They were supposed to go up earlier, and his—they kept postponing. It Until it was too late, we, we weren't the first. But there's one, I'll leave you with this funny story. This is a, a, a history, once in a while you get gifts. Uh, the, so right after Alan Shepard goes there, not shortly after, weeks after Alan Shepard's the big hero, Kennedy's in the back of the presidential limousine with Alan Shepard, Lyndon Johnson, and Newt, um, Newton Minow, head of federal um, FCC, federal communications. They're going to a media event and they're in the back of the limo and something like this occurs i write it exactly in the book um they joke um minnow starts joking you know what alan if you would have died up there in space uh um kennedy jack here would have blamed the whole thing on Lyndon, and and uh and he would and now kennedy was grabbing it it's mine you know and they uh kennedy uh said essentially um No, if uh, Alan, you would have died, uh, Lyndon would have been the next astronaut. (laughs) 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 Thank you all.